Welcome to First Importance, the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer today is that you will be blessed and encouraged by the message to come. Josh is speaking to the youth tonight and asked me to speak to you, so I don't know how you should look at that. I don't know who the unlucky ones are, but uh, you're stuck with me. Now, I know normally on Wednesday nights, and Josh usually has, you know, we've been going through a book or, or whatever, but, you know, I asked Josh, this so what do I need to do? Of course, you know, this was supposed to be last week, and then the storm, and I was probably the only person praying for storms again today, but uh, I'm kidding. I, I was not. I'm glad, glad, glad to do it. That was ugly, wasn't it? Um, but, and I know Josh, he said, no, nah, you just do whatever you want, and he did tell me I could not go over the likelihood that the Grizzlies will win the NBA championship, so there went number one. So what I thought we'd do, to, for those of you, I hope all of you, have been participating. You know, 39 days ago, our pastor called us to 40 days of prayer for our church. We've got some um, pretty serious decisions, challenges ahead of us. We've uh, got two staff members to replace this year. We've got some major decisions about our facilities to make. And, you know, in, in all honesty, you know, I think, I hope it's time that, you know, we got to start looking at how to come out of this global pandemic. I know we've kind of been semi-back to normal, but I, I don't think our fellowship is back to normal. So we've got some, some big decisions to make, and I just thought it was appropriate. I, I really, when Josh told me he was uh, going to do that, I thought that was the perfect thing to do. What else than to go to the Lord in prayer, and tomorrow is day 40. So I just wanted to go over kind of what Josh asked us to pray for. And, and related, how many of you know, what, do you remember the five specific things Josh asked us to pray for during that 40 days? First one was patience. Second one, wisdom. Third one, unity. Fourth one, revival. Fifth one, salvation for our community. Great. Well, hey, it looks like we're doing good then. Well, in the last week with Easter coming up, since actually Christmas, my Sunday school class, you know, we looked at the at the birth of Christ. Uh, for been doing since it's been following his earthly ministry. Some well, not chronologically, often because that was three years, and we had a few months that got cut in half, got cut in about a quarter. Because every time I turned around, either weather. Or a special event at church. I had, you know, I, I'm not normally that organized, but after Christmas, I came down, I sat down in my notebook, and I said, all right, I'm going to lay my lessons out between now and Easter, because I wanted to end this past week with us going over the resurrection. So I laid it out, and we only missed, what, four, four Sundays of Sunday school between now and then that I didn't know about, so my whole schedule was, was thrown off. But last week, we did look, and and I read every, I try to every year, but, you know, the Gospels, especially, uh, I always use the Gospel of Luke, but I read them all that week. But I, re, I try to read each day, starting with uh, Palm Sunday, what, what, G, what happened to Jesus each day during that last week. And, and follow that. And as I read that, and was all, obviously in my prayer time praying for these five things that, I don't know, it kind of stuck out to me, but you got to be careful. If some things stick out to me, Renee says, I have no idea where you got that from. But I thought, wow, you know, because needless to say, in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, his life on earth, 
he was facing a pretty big crisis too. You know, what was about to happen to him on the cross was not a surprise to him. He knew exactly what was happening. And Jesus was as fully human as he was fully divine. And the, no fully human person can see the cross coming and not dread it. And we see that in the Gospels. But I thought, as I thought about what Josh had asked us to pray, and I was reading daily how Jesus approached that last week, I thought, there's really some similarities in how Jesus approached and prayed and did things during that last week as he faced that challenge, or really in his whole ministry, that Josh has asked us. And that's what we're going to look at. So um, we're just going to look a little bit at some passages, and I apologize. I know what we used to do and the way I usually do my Sunday school class is, you know, we get in a passage and we break it down, and we're not going to do that tonight because I'm kind of taking different pieces. It's all, all from the Gospels, but I'm kind of moving around to, because some of the Gospel writers give more detail about certain things that happened in the last week of Christ's life than others, and, and that details what we need. But we're going to start out. So of those five things, I kind of look at it, the first three are kind of the means, right? We want, we're asking God for patience, wisdom, and unity. And then the last two, revival and salvation, are kind of the ends we would like the Lord to deliver that those three means are hopefully get us to, right? That patience, wisdom, and unity will lead to revival for believers and salvation for unbelievers. I mean, that's the way I looked at it. So tonight we're going to look back at how Jesus used a similar approach to, I think, to kind of achieve the same thing. And so the first thing we want to look at is patience. Now, off the top of my head, and, you know, I, I got to tell you, Dr. Milliken, now I know what all these seminary students say when they get up here to preach and they see Dr. Milliken. Now, I'm sitting here thinking, man, I hope your theology's on tonight. I'm kidding. Uh, not really. Um, but we start out looking at, at patience. Now, I thought, right, what are some examples that I've look, we've looked at as we've been going through the ministry of Christ that show Christ's patience? And one... You know, it's kind of different. I wouldn't have said this, but I, I, I read a book prior to us starting this called The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey. And it's talking about removing... I mean, Philip just says, you know, if you look at the Gospels and you look at Christ's life and you, you take out all the, the, the things of Christ, we think, the things we think about Christ and know about Christ that are more related to church tradition and not what's actually in the Gospel... And, and, and you look at them in the light of the world Jesus was in at the time, sometimes you see a little different view of Jesus. You see Jesus, to me, even to, to what he did was even greater. What, what he did was even more sacrificial and, and more difficult. But when I think of one of the things that came up that I never thought about in terms of patience, but it's at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, not in the last week, but the very beginning, maybe even... Close to the first week, we know, you know, the Gospels record that he was baptized. And then right after that, he went in the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days. And, you know, I'm not, we're not going to read that whole passage, but in Luke, or I will, I think, Luke 4, 1 through 13, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when he had ended, 
And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And their hands bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against. I cut it off. Anyway, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Now, we know that, you know, I, I read several things on this passage. And, you know, some scholars say, you know, that Satan was trying to determine, is this really the Christ? Others say, no, Satan knew exactly who he was talking to. And he was simply tempting him. This past, but. One thing I read said what he was really tempting him with, I mean, those were three. I mean, Jesus was hungry. He hadn't ate 40 days, so he tempted him to turn stone into bread. Well, he's tempting him to overcome his hunger. But, he said, but one writer proposed that what he's really, all those temptations in a way, he's really tempting Jesus to take a shortcut. And what I'm saying is that Jesus, even at this point, at the beginning of his ministry, one weekend, did he know where, where he was headed? Sure he did. And he knew what, what that sacrifice was for. And he knew what was going to, what was going to, how his life was going to end. And the devil's saying, I'll show you a shorter way. Forget the cross. Take it now. I'll make you king of the world. The world here, I'm giving it to you. Have it. Don't go to the cross. Now, that's tempting if you're human, right? You know the cross is coming. And somebody says, hey, I'll get you the end you're seeking without the cross. Now, I don't, you know... If that were me, we'd have to sit down and negotiate probably. But, and the reason I say I think it's patience because Jesus, I mean, he had two to three years of ministry to go. And here Satan's offering him. But Jesus was patient. And when we say we pray, we're praying what today, when we're praying for God for patience, patience for what? It's patience to wait on God's way, right? We don't want to do it our way. You know, there, I mean... Because if we want to do it our way, and I took a poll in here tonight, I don't know how many people are in here, but probably I'd get close to that many ways. And chances are none of them are exactly God's way. And that's the only right way. Well, see, Jesus had the patience to say, no, God's way is the only way. And that's what he told Satan, basically. He says, no, you know, I'm not going to worship anything. But see, if Jesus had turned stone to bread... He could have got a lot of people to follow him. If Jesus had gone and jumped off the pinnacle of the temple in front of all the people in Jerusalem and been unhurt, he could have gotten a lot of people to follow him. But that wasn't God's plan. So Jesus said, no, I follow God, and I'm going to wait on God. Another example is at the end of Jesus' ministry. And that's in, if you go to John 11, verse 54, this is, the end of after he had raised Lazarus from the dead. We're not going to read that whole story. You, you know that story. But after Jesus, and you know, this is shortly before his death, and I tried to find out exactly how much time that was, and it wasn't, I couldn't find anything that was clear on it, but it does appear that it wasn't long because at the end of that passage, it said that after people saw what he did, they what? They believed, and they began to follow him. 
Well, then some went to the Pharisees, and the passage says the Pharisees heard it, and then they began to plan to do what? To kill him. So, once again, Jesus, you know, I may be stretching a little bit here, but I see that temptation away from, for impatience again. I mean, once again, Jesus has just publicly raised a man who's been dead. Was it four days? Four days in front of witnesses. And it says, we, man, he could have, I mean, let's face it, in today's world, he could have taken that and he could have had fought. He could have been, I mean, let's face it, in just a short time, he's going to enter Jerusalem and they are basically calling him king, right? So I believe there is another temptation. And now he's only a short time away from the cross. But Jesus chose, and it says in verse 54, it says, Therefore, after the people began to follow him because of what he had done, he raised Lazarus, the, the Pharisees are looking to kill him. You know, he could have brought it all to a head right there, one way or another. But it says, Jesus, Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Until what? Until the time God appointed, which was a very short time, but until Passover. So again, Jesus, patience, but, but he's waiting on God's time. He's waiting on God's plan. At no point do we see Jesus saying, well, okay, now it's time. No, Jesus waited. It says he goes away and waits until God's time. And we know exactly God's time because when it came time, I mean, what's Jesus tell his disciples? When it's time to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, what's he, and, they, and they're approaching Jerusalem, what's he tell them? Hey, there's this guy who's got this colt, and it's tied up. Y'all go tell him the Lord needs it. You don't think that was God's time? I mean, you know, so he had patience. The second was wisdom. Now, we could sit here all night and talk about all the times Jesus exhibited wisdom in the Gospels. Matter of fact, as I thought about this, you know, my first thought, and I guess it's just, you know, the ornery side of me, but I think of all the times the Pharisees tried to test him. I mean, you know, and Jesus just made mincemeat of them. You know, I mean, not once did it did it work right up until, you know, to the end. But um, the wisdom we're talking about here, right, is to discern God's will and God's way in addressing a challenge. And the, the passage I picked for that was Matthew 26. And I'm sorry to keep bouncing you guys around. And I'm cheating because I copy the verses into the notes on my iPad so I have them all there and I don't have to flip around. So I'm sorry. But, so Matthew 26, 38 to 42, he said, Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond and fell on his face and prayed. And prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may enter into temptation that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Well, in in when we say we want wisdom, we're not supposed to be praying. You know, I, I have to be careful. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm still waiting for God to answer this prayer, but I pray for wisdom all the time, have for years. From the time I was a young person, we read about Solomon and that Solomon prayed for wisdom. And I saw what Solomon got. I thought, man, I'm praying for that too. 
hadn't quite worked for me the way it did Solomon. But um, but but when we pray, when we say we're praying for wisdom, it's it's not for earthly gain. That, that's not the kind of wisdom God gives. That's not what I believe we should be asking for. I believe when we ask for wisdom, we should be asking wisdom primarily to discern God's will and God's ways from the ways of the world. And sometimes that's confusing, isn't it? I mean, sometimes I, I find myself on issues, and you know, and I could just turn on some conservative news station and whatever opinion they have, I could say, well, that's, that should be mine. Or if you're liberal, do the other. If you're one part. But if I really want to know God's will and God's way, sometimes if I'm looking through the eyes of the world, it's not that cut and dry. And so wisdom to me, when we ask for wisdom, we're asking God to give us wisdom so that we can discern His will and His ways from that of the world. And that's what we should be asking now. And you see Jesus here. What was, I mean, we're seeing how human, and that was one of the things this book pointed out. It says, you know, you cannot deny, I mean, obviously you cannot, you can't deny the, the deity of Christ, but you also cannot deny the humanity of Christ. I mean, if Christ were not human, then the cross really wouldn't have been that big a deal. You know, I mean, Muslims will tell you that's why they can't believe. You know, no God can go to the cross. You know, but he was fully human. And as fully human, you see, that's, that's in the garden. And Jesus knows he's moments away from being arrested. And what was his attitude? Well, it's the same attitude as anybody who's about to face that brutal execution. He's saying, God, if there's any way to avoid this. And maybe this is kind of a weird stretch on wisdom, but you see what he wanted was God's will. Now, I don't know that Jesus had to ask for wisdom like we do, but Jesus' wisdom took him to the point of saying, okay, you know, he's begging God. If there's any other way, God, let me take that route. But then what's the last thing he says there? If this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Well, it may come the point as we continue, and I will say, Josh asked us to, uh, asked to commit to 40 days of prayer, and that 40 days ends tomorrow, but I'm pretty certain we don't need to stop praying uh, at this point. Um, but, but you see that, that we may come to the same point. I mean, not facing the cross, obviously. And, you know, let me make sure we have this perspective. Picking two staff members and deciding what to do with facilities and deciding how what we need to do, how we need to go about uh, conducting our, our, our business in the church and our, our worship in the church after a global pandemic pales in comparison to facing the cross. You know, let's make that clear. But nonetheless, we may come to a point, you know, where talking about, go back to the verse, patience. God may not answer our prayer in the time we would like. You know, if you're the parent or grandparent of a youth, you want a youth minister in here fast. And we all think, man, we, we got to have somebody in here to take care of these children before Brother Billy leaves. I hope so. I hope both those come out true, but what if that's not God's plan? In all honesty, it's hard to say it, but I would much rather deal with the unknown that's outside what I think's right, but in God's way, than to try to create something myself. And so we may be called to be patient. 
It may not happen the way in the time frame we want. And we're going to need wisdom in order to figure that out. And so that takes us to the next one. And I think this is the real key. And that's unity. And when you talk and in the church, we probably use that term a little loosely. I mean, probably almost unity is probably almost as misused as the word love. You know, we, I talk about that in my Sunday school class quite a bit. You know, we have so loosely used the word love for so long that it's lost its, some of its meaning, hadn't it? I mean, you know, we talk about love and hamburgers. I mean, you know, love, 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 till sometimes maybe true love gets a little clouded. Well, unity is kind of the same way. We talk about it. We use the word loosely, and we know deep down, I mean, I don't even think, you know, even non-Christians would probably understand that the word unity, unity is a positive thing. When you're talking about our nation and we need to be united or whatever group. But in the church, I think it's even more so. It sounds good. We know it's how things should be. But do we really make an effort to create and maintain unity? Do we really emphasize unity the way we should? If you want to see how important unity was to Jesus, just look at the last words. He spoke to his apostles on this earth. John gives us a de- gives more of a detailed account. This is really, if you go to the passage about the Last Supper, you see the other gospel writers, you know, they don't give as much detail about what Jesus talked about to his apostles between the meal and the garden. But that's all one evening, unless I got it wrong. But John goes in detail about what Jesus told him. You got to think, here's Jesus. And I think about this often when I think about the apostles. I mean, you've got 12, at least, I mean, blue-collar guys for the most part, right? And these are the guys that God gave Jesus. He says that here. You gave them to me, Father. They're the ones you picked is kind of what he said. But Jesus knows I've got this short window to teach them. And then God's going to take, the Holy Spirit's going to take these 12, well, 11, and he's going to change the world, right? With 11 pretty much uneducated men, he's going to change the world forever. So here Jesus is, he realizes within just hours I'm going to be arrested and crucified. This is my last chance. This is the last chance I have, at least before before I'm resurrected anyway. We know after the resurrection he appeared to them. But he said, here's my last things I can tell them, my last chance to pray with them before this happens. So I'm thinking, man... You know, if that were, I mean, I would think that's if, if I only had a short period of time to be with my sons, man, I would, I would want to get the important stuff out there. You know, who gets my boat? No, I'm kidding. But, but so, so if you look at, if you turn to John chapter 13, and that's, there's several, I should have looked it up, but I think at least chapters 13 through 17, you can look, is all that same time between the, them partaking of the Last Supper, 
And right after, I believe, 17 is when it says, then they left and got up and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know what happened there. But if you look in John 13 and verse 35, it says, and Jesus is talking to them, and he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You may say, now, Jeff, that, that didn't say one thing about unity. But I am confident that if we love one another the way Jesus commanded, disunity would be impossible. Love is the key for unity. You can't really, especially the unity that Jesus is talking about here, it cannot be achieved absence of, absent of love. So I believe when he's telling them, they'll know. So what's he saying there? He's saying, so people will know that you belong to me by the way you love one another. And you know, years ago when my Sunday school class, we were studying kind of the history of the, of the early church. And I, I, I talk about this all the time, and it just really stuck out to me, and I wish I had, I wish I was better organized. And I, back then, you see, now I've actually gotten old enough that I know I'll never find something if it's, I used to just do my, my Sunday school lesson on just loose leaf paper and then fold it up. And I just had loose leaf papers all over my office at home. And, you know, sometimes you might actually think about something you learned a couple of years ago and want to know where it is. Well, I have no chance anymore. But for the last year or so, I've been doing that. But I didn't have that for that, but I still remember it. And we were talking about it. It was during the early church and the rise of the early church. And a Roman writer, a pagan, not, not a Christian, and, and he was really writing. He, he didn't... He didn't care much for Christians, and he didn't, but, but he made a statement as he's abusing them. You know, he, he's really talking about how ridiculous Christians are and what's going on in Palestine, you know, in the Roman Empire. But he makes one statement at the end after he says all these bad things about Christians, and he says, but, he says, I have to say, they, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember his exact words, but he says that they are somewhat peculiar in the way they care for each other. Now, here's this pagan, this Roman pagan. And here are these people who are under persecution. Now, you got to remember, we, we, we think our world's bad, but no, we're nothing compared to what was going on in Palestine with the early church. You know, it's like those of you went to Africa, and we would share with the Muslims there. And, and you know, and I remember being with Pastor Philip one time, and, and he shared the gospel of the village they said had never allowed Christians into their village, and they allowed him to preach. And there were about 200 people gathered in a circle um, around him. And there were some young men. Now, I don't think I would call them militant, but they were definitely assertive in their defense of the Koran. And Pastor Philip used the, the camel approach to share the gospel with them, which actually uses, believe it or not, uses the Koran to share Jesus. Because what most people don't know is the Koran speaks more highly of Jesus than it does Muhammad. It just doesn't believe he's God, unfortunately. I'll admit, that's a big unfortunate. But, but as he shares it, and you, you get to the end, and you basically let the Koran... And so in the Koran, um, Muhammad says that he doesn't know if he's going to heaven. But he is certain that Jesus Christ is in heaven. That's, it's in the Koran. That's a paraphrase, but it's in the Koran. And, and, of course, we aren't, you know, in front of Muslims. You know, we can't touch or read from the Koran. So he had to have these young men do it for him. And so he gets to the end. He says, now let me ask you a question. If, if you wanted, he said, if I invited you, my, invited you to my house for dinner 
and you didn't know where I lived, who would be the best person to ask how to get there? And one of these young men, they were bright. He said, would be you. He goes, exactly. So if you want to get to heaven, who should you ask? The person who doesn't know if he's going to go or the person he believes is already there? And you see, the, what we're working toward is that. that. That's that unity. That's that love. See, we want people to see us and get where we are. And that, that's what they saw. See, they saw that. But what I was getting at is, is so, you know, that blew everybody away. It blew me away. And I was a Christian, you know, because when the guys were getting a little assertive, I was making sure I had a clear path back to the van, you know. But, uh, but when he got this, so Pastor Philip does an invitation. He says, how many people would like to, uh, were you there for that, Mr. Flynn? You went to church. Well, this was when so half of us went to church in Wa and half went here. But he said, um, so how many of y'all would like to, you know, get an invitation, follow Jesus? And, of course, you know, I, I opened one eye. Hands are up everywhere. I went, oh, my. Oh, my. But then Pastor Philip was honest with him. And he said, now I've got to be honest with you. Raising your hand may mean you lose your job. Raising your hand may mean you lose your family. Raising your hand may mean you're going to be persecuted. Now, how many people? Not another hand went up. I mean, they all went down and they didn't come back up. But I say that in that that's, that's not the world we live in. So imagine the unity that the early church exhibited when some Roman pagan writer said, but wow, sure, they are, sure are peculiar and how they care for one another. And I believe that's what Jesus meant when he said, they will know that you belong to me by the way you love one another. Now, that Roman pagan may not have been able to put together why they cared for one another, but see, they did enough. That if, and, and who knows? At least maybe that seed was planted. As he looked around in Rome and saw that kind of care, that kind of love didn't exist. But that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, finally, I want to move on. Look in chapter 17. We're still talking about um, unity. And um, 17 in verse 11 says, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. And if you skip down to verse 20, it says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be, also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, that talks about unity. Jesus talked about that when people... He's, that they would be one just as... I mean, Jesus saying he, that he's praying. This is Jesus praying for his apostles just before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's telling them, Lord, make them as unified as you and I are. I mean, you can't get more unified than that. And that's the unity he prayed for his apostles. And the reason was why. So they'll know they belong to us. So when a church fails the test of unity, you're not just failing this, this term of unity that sounds good. We're failing God. 
we're commanded. This, I mean, this was so important. That this is the last thing Jesus prayed for, for his apostles, was unity. And I have to believe he knew. I mean, he knew the mission they had. These 11 men are going to have to, they're going to change the world. They are going to be the ones tasked with carrying the gospel to the world. For writing. Some of them are going to write God's word down so that you and I would have it. And the, one of the things he, he talked about most in those final moments was unity. Now, I think he, and he, and he makes it clear that love and unity go together. You can't have unity without love. It's just, it's just the key. And, you know, and again, so now we're talking about, you know, I said before, unity is probably one of the most abused words except love. Now, I guess, if, according to me, now you have to have the two most abused words in order to make it, love and unity. But you have to, you, they have to be right. You know, we all say, we're quick to say, well, yeah, I love my church. But you know what? Half the time we say that, when we think about church, we're thinking about this facility. And I don't mean the buildings, but, but really and truly, when I say I, the love he's talking about, I'm supposed to love every one of you individually. You're my family. If we're one in God, matter of fact, as much as I love and, and, and thank the Lord that most or my immediate family are all Christians. So I get to love them. I mean, our love is eternal because they're going to be with me one day in heaven. But we can't all save our family. So in some sense, for some of us, our family here, the love we have for them is eternal. And even for some people, our family, it's unfortunately, it's not. But in reality, we, and I know that's, that's hard to deal with when I start talking about loving people at church, the way you love your immediate family. But that is, remember, that's what's supposed to make us different. See, people are supposed to see that and go, wow. These people are different. You know, how can they love that guy who's nothing like him, like he loves his own family? But that's what we're called to do. And finally, I'm going to close with the results that come from that. So when we pray for those things, the means, patience, wisdom, and unity, then what results are we hoping for? And I think it'll be, well, I'm going to show you, it's consistent with Scripture. The first one's revival. Now, let's remember, revival is for believers. You can't revive something that's never been alive. You know, because I remember as a kid, you know, you know, back then you had, what, two, you always had, I remember, two revivals a year, spring and fall, the week long. And I just remember, and, and, and thank goodness, I mean, I've been in some revival service. A lot of people got saved. And for me, that's what revival meant. It was an opportunity, a special thing you did so that lost people got saved. And there's obviously nothing wrong with that, but that's not what revival is. They weren't revived. They were brought to life for the first time spiritually, right? So revival is for us. It's for, it's for believers. And look at the revival. And we're not going to read it, but you know it. Look at the revival that occurred in the apostles. They went from hiding in fear. What happened when after Jesus was crucified, between his crucifixion and resurrection, where were the apostles? Hiding, scared to death. You know, even big, tough Peter, man, he's right in the locked room with them. You know, so they're hiding in fear. And then think about what happens next when we move into Acts. 
Now that same group of men, trembling in fear, are rejoicing in persecution, sharing the gospel, and taking their faith all the way to martyrdom. That's revival. That's what those things, Jesus prayed for those things, he lived those things as possible, and so that's one of the other, salvation. Now, you know, we think about salvation for our community, and I'm going to be honest with you, our world does not value West Memphis, Arkansas very much at all. Our own state does not value West Memphis, Arkansas very much. And we all, those of you who've lived here a long time like I have, you know that's true. And you know, sometimes I'm afraid I don't value the souls of West Memphis, Arkansas the way I should. But I'll promise you, no matter what part of town you're in, whether it's south, east, west, north, Marion, Earl, every soul in those towns is precious to God. Every one of them. And that's what that salvation is for. And I want to, we go back to our scripture. What happened in Acts 2 and Acts 4? Those are just two examples. But here, remember, these apostles who have been revived, one of them, Peter, right after Pentecost, when they thought they were all drunk, when they saw the Holy Spirit come on them, Peter walks outside, preaches, and what happened? 3,000 people are saved. And just a day or two later, Peter preaches again. My Bible called it Peter's second sermon. But he basically preaches that same basic gospel message. And what happens? 5,000 people are saved. That's salvation. And I'm going to tell you, God doesn't, didn't love the people of Jerusalem any more than he loves the people of West Memphis. Nor does he desire their salvation any more than he desired the salvation of the people of Jerusalem. And to put it in perspective about Revival and salvation. I just looked this up. Just, I'm a numbers guy. So 12 men. They did that one. So 12 men in 30 A.D. By 200 A.D., there were 1.2. These are obviously estimates. There was no census. But they estimate by 200 A.D. So less than 200 years later, there's 1.2 million Christians now, these are the direct work of 12 men. That's the root, right? To 358, in two, uh, 200 A.D., 1.2 million. And by 350 A.D., no, I'm getting this wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah, 30 million in 300 A.D. And by 350 A.D., so about 300 years, which when you talk about the scheme of, of history, that's not much. Christians were the majority in the Roman Empire. So from 12 men, Jesus basically prays and, and leads them in the very things that our pastors ask us to do. And Christianity went from 12 scared men to millions. So to think that he couldn't save West Memphis, I don't, I don't think I can buy that. It doesn't fit Scripture. Thank you for joining us for this episode of First Importance. We invite you to check out our other sermons on this podcast and to join us in person on Sundays at 8.30 or 10.45 a.m., as well as streaming live on Sunday mornings at 10.45. We hope to see you soon at First Baptist West Memphis, where we love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.